Uh, I love coming together the week, especially the week of Christmas, um, as a church family, because, you know, um, it seems like the time of year when we feel the most like a family, because it's a time of year you get together with your family, and, and there's nothing like coming together here to talk about, you know, why we celebrate this thing, and the fact that we anticipate the birth of Jesus, just as we anticipated it back when it really happened uh, physically. Um, and the reason we anticipate it is not just because of all the stuff. Um, as a pastor, I'm legally obligated to, to now say how all that stuff gets in the way and do this with my hand as I do it. So not all the gifts and all the junk and all the music and all the busyness and all the shopping and all the family and all the stress. It's not about all those things, okay? It's about it's about Jesus, and it's about anticipating him, and you can't really anticipate him unless you feel like there's even a reason that you would need him at all. And so that's what we're talking about this morning in this idea of anticipation. You guys are going to see how impressive my slide is that I made. Uh, it, really, it really rivals the other ones that we've done. I got really creative with it. I'm building it up. Steve's so stressed out. Okay, there it is. Look at that. I, I, look at that. Okay, this morning we're talking about anticipation. We're in the book of Malachi. If you want to know where that is, it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's kind of easy, I guess. But the Old Testament doesn't end right in the middle. You would think maybe it kind of did, but no, not even close. So don't just go right to the middle. You're going to have a ways to go. Um, you can read along in your Bible, or you can um, just uh, walk, like see what's up on the screen, because I'm going to put the three verses that we're going to look at this morning through Malachi, or the verse sections up on the screen. Um, I keep talking about this idea of anticipation, and it's because I love it. I love knowing something really cool is coming and just waiting for it and getting excited about it and getting pumped up for it. Um, I, uh, when I was a kid, I, I don't know why, because I wasn't even a good student at all, but I really anticipated school starting every year. I really, really liked the idea of school is starting. And I think I just got hyped up, you know, it was like a big thing is happening. And so uh, what I did, because I was so excited and also because I was weird, is I took my new outfit, usually it was completely new, um, new shoes and everything, um, and uh, I, I wasn't rich, that was just the only time we got new clothes was at the beginning of the school year. And uh, I laid them out in my room, you're like, yeah, it's not that weird. But I would lay them out in the shape of me. Um, and so I would put like the backpack and then put a jacket, arms in it, and then put a shirt in the jacket and then put the pants out and then the socks and then the shoes if I could get them. I really wanted to get the shoes because they were new. And, uh, and I, one year I think I tried to stuff it and that didn't really work and it took me too long to get ready in the morning. But you know, this is one of many things that my parents were kind of like, that's weird, you're weird, you know, that you would do that. We didn't tell you to do that. We didn't give you that idea. And uh, eventually I grew out of it. But um, I got like so excited about school starting. The last time I, t I told that story once before to a church and I got so many text messages. I think I told that story because it was the beginning of the school year. I got so many text messages of pictures of people's clothes laid out, like on their bed and on their floor. And I was like, that's cool, kind of weird. Like I'm just gonna for a week get these pictures. But so you can do that if you want. You can, you can get your clothes ready for Christmas and you can lay them out and you can take pictures and send it to me and that would still be weird, even like when I did it. But I got so excited for stuff, I was doing some pretty weird things. I, 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 get, I anticipate Christmas, it's very easy, because I live with two Advent calendars. One of them is five years old, and one of them is six years old. And these Advent calendars regularly remind me every day that it's going to be Christmas. Uh, they do not give candy, they take candy. Uh, as they remind me, they ask for candy. Uh, Ellie really just puts it out everywhere. And so, like... I mean, I, I get that, but at the same time, it is kind of a challenge because they always want it. They're always climbing up on things to get it. And our kids every day, our son's really into calendars. I don't know why he's really into calendar right now. We have a calendar on the wall. Every day he wants to check off the day. Every day he wants to talk about what's coming. 
Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming. And then we have to talk about it. And we have to talk about what he wants to do for Christmas and what they want for Christmas and all the stuff they want to eat for Christmas and all the people they want to see for Christmas. And then he gives this, Tegan especially, gives this obligatory disclaimer where he goes, Jesus, Christmas is, is, for, is for sharing and caring and Jesus. And he like says some line that he heard somewhere and he learned maybe in school or something. And he, he like or Sunday school and he says it. And then he goes, but anyway, here's all the stuff that I want to do, you know, for Christmas. And let's talk about that for like three, like three hours. So like... So much going on in my house. And before we had kids, the anticipation wasn't quite the same. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a daily thing like that. It was a lot more mellow. And, and, and so I love it. I really love it because it keeps me thinking about what's coming. And so often we just don't really think about what's coming and what this thing means. We're in this, uh, the book of Malachi, and we're going to look through it really quickly. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's a prophetic book. And Malachi is a conversation, really, between God and his people in Judah. Now, what had happened was the people had been exiled from from Israel, from Jerusalem. They were exiled into the Babylonian Empire. They came and conquered them. They took them. They scattered them. And God told the people this was going to happen because they were being disobedient to him. But they didn't listen, and it happened anyway. And the people are all scattered into the Babylonian Empire. And then the Babylonians are taken over by the Persians, who actually are nicer. Think like Persian rug feels nice. They're kind of nicer than the Babylonians. And so what they do is they decide, we're going to let people live in certain areas. And in fact, if we conquer an area, we're going to let the people stay there. We're just going to change a few things and let them keep living there, whereas the Babylonians weren't like that at all. Um, and one of the things that the Persians eventually did was they eventually let some people go back to Jerusalem um, and they let them build the temple again. They said, we want to go back and we want to build a temple. We want to build the wall of our city. Would you let us live in this city once again and be these people once again? And the king allows them to do it. And so they go and do it. And it takes them a while. They got off track a little bit, but they eventually do it. And they worship God, and they greatly appreciate the fact that they're now, once again, able to live in Jerusalem, these people of Judah, and they're able to, to, to finally be back sort of in the promised land. This letter, what Malachi is saying to these people, this is not written to that group of people. This is written to the people who have lost that passion. This is written to the group of people later who have worshiped God, but they're doing it kind of half-heartedly. And this is God's message to those people as he's already seen that begin to happen. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, of a forewarning. It's a little negative, what he has to say to the people. I thought, what's better than a negative message the day before Christmas Eve? So this is a picture of a sand dune, and that's not actually the last slide, uh, but I guess we'll try to get it back up. So there you go, guys. There's a picture of a sand dune. Are my slides not working back there? It's not. No, okay. Well, we'll see. So um, the problem with, depending on your slides, is sometimes you don't put the verses in your notes. So uh, the first one's easy, though, because in, in verse 2, if you look at it in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, uh, what he says to the people, what God says to the people first is simply this, I have loved you. He says, I have loved you, and then he says, and you say to me, how have you loved us? So this is what it's going to be. It's going to be a debate. It's going to be a discussion between God and his people. And that discussion is going to be God basically saying to them, here's my words, and I know, I know what you're going to say back to me. Here's what you're going to say back to me. You're going to say, why do you love us? Now, this is really significant, the fact that God says this. 
The fact that God starts what he says to his people with these words, I have loved you. There is no more important truth than the fact that God has loved us. The fact that up until this point, God has loved us. That's what he's saying to his people. He's saying up until this point, know that I have loved you and that you can depend on that. Why is he saying it that way? Because if you're a parent and you have something hard to say to your kids or you have to have a conversation with them that they might not like so much, you're gonna start that conversation or in some point in it, you're gonna say, I love you. This is the reason I'm coming at you like this is because I love you. It gives you credibility, it gives you trust. And the fact of the matter is, you do love them if you're their parent usually, and you've shown that, not just with a bunch of words, you've actually shown that by the fact that you're gonna take care of them, you're taking care of them. So when I say to my kids, listen, I love you, they know that I've taken care of them all the way up till this point, and they can trust me. And that means something. Even when the thing I have to say is hard. When God says to his people, the Israelites, when he says, I have loved you. He's saying that to them to remind them of everything that has happened up till this point in their life. God did everything for us out of love. He created us out of love. He didn't do it for any other reason. He created us out of love. He then recreated us out of love. We see that in Exodus that we looked at. God actually uh, creates a whole new group of people and no matter what the Pharaoh throws against these people, they, they, or Egypt, they grow and grow and grow. God creates a whole new nation of people. And then we see that God saves these people again and again and again. He redeems them. He pursues these people. Oh, all right, we're getting close. I like this. This is good. Now you guys see all the slides, but that's okay. All right, now I'm wondering what's on my desktop. This is the biggest fear of any public speaker. <laughs> What is currently the background on my desktop? I don't think it's anything bad. Okay. Oh, look at that. Look at that. It's a nice picture of the Willamette River. Okay. So God says, I have loved you. I moved here a year ago. I still don't know. But you say, how has he loved us? Yes. Thank you, guys. God allowed these people to be returned from captivity because he loved them. He provided for them because he loved them. The story of God and his people in the Old Testament again and again and again and again is this. God will pursue his people. And then he's going to rescue his people. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the prodigal son. You see it in Jesus' coming. You see God going out and saying, I will pursue you. I will rescue you. Why? Because I have loved you. So when he says, I have loved you, think on those things. And now, really listen and trust to what I have to say to you at this point. Why does this matter for us? Because no matter what happens... No matter what is happening right now, we can know that up until now, God has loved us. And that gives credibility to what he has to say right now to us. We know that God has loved us. We know that he has shown his love for us in so many different ways. And we can anticipate God moving again. The hardest thing for God's people, these very people that are being talked to, the hardest thing for them was to simply remember that God loved them and what he did, and expect him to do it again. And that is one of the hardest things about being one of God's people, is to simply remember what he did and know he can do it again. That's so hard to do. And so for a lot of us who have a hard time believing that God loves us, it's not even because our life was hard or painful. It's because we simply cannot remember or trust that he'll continue loving us moving forward, and then we question what he did in the first place. And if you 
If you're, if you're a person who follows Jesus and you don't believe that God has loved you up till this point, that is the first thing that you need to figure out right now. Like the first and most important thing that you need to figure out is, has God loved me? Why don't I feel like he has if I don't? What is it that gets in the way of that? You can say it to God himself as the psalmist cries out often again and again and again when they are upset or scared or worried or fearful. You can bring those things to God. You can tell somebody else. But if you aren't really, if you don't really feel like God has loved you up till this point, you're not going to be able to trust anything that he says to you moving forward. So that's the happy part. Then we get to this part. In verses 6 through 9, he says this. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? All right, I'm all messed up, sorry. Is that not evil? And then he says, present, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show me favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. So what God's saying here, he's talking about sacrifice and he's basically talking to the priests and he's saying, you guys have not actually sacrifice the way that you're supposed to. And it kind of matters. We said last week, we were talking about sacrifice, that all the different sacrifices in the Bible, all the different sacrifices ultimately really mean one thing. They're all about one thing. They're all about God's people saying, we want you here with us still. We want to be in your presence and we want you to dwell in our presence. So whether it was a sacrifice for sin or you're giving him some of your crops from the best of what you have, you're giving him sacrifice during a festival um, or on the Sabbath or a holy day, all of those things are ultimately meant to say to God, we want you here with us still. And we want to sacrifice so that we're pure before you and so that you know how much you mean to us. And so what they sacrificed was very valuable things. And for them, that was animals. And what would you do if you were, you know, gonna sacrifice, but your heart wasn't really in it? You would still sacrifice, but you wouldn't really give the best. And so people literally were giving blind animals. They were giving sick animals, animals that were already gonna die, animals that they couldn't really use for anything else. Uh, those were the animals that they were sacrificing and giving up to God. And so he says to the priest, he says, he says would you do this for a governor, like a, like a human governor? Or would you fear them? Would you give them a sacrifice like this or would you fear their response to you? Then why do you do this for me? Why do you sacrifice to me something that isn't truly valuable to you? Sacrifice was a huge part of worship. It was the way that they came and that they worshiped God. It was always an opportunity for people to worship. And so we, you know, we don't do it here. We don't sacrifice here. But it is ultimately the same thing as when we come and we sing and we, we learn and we look in God's word and we give of our finances and we give of ourselves really because the modern day sacrifice the process of what that looked like is something we call really repentance. It's us opening up our heart and saying, God, uh, would you search my heart? Is there something in here? Are there things in here 
that ought not to be here and are getting in the way of me and you being close. Me depending on you, living for you, needing you. And if there are things, then God, I want to get rid of those things, even though that's painful, even though that hurts. That act of death of those things, of death of yourself, is a sacrifice that we make. And it's a hard one to make. One of the hardest things to do is to simply allow God to keep searching your heart year after year, day after day, week after week, month after month. The other sacrifice is Jesus says to those who follow him, die to yourselves. He says, you, you just, you give your life, the things that, that you care about, your ambitions, all that stuff, you give it to me and that's a sacrifice for me. And so what he's saying to these people is he's saying to them pretty simply, whatever you guys are doing as you try to approach me and worship me, you're not doing it well enough. You're not doing it in a way that's really truly honoring to me because your heart's not fully in it uh, and your sacrifices show that. And the reason why that matters, the reason why when I read this, I think I know what this is like is because the truth is as somebody who's a part of what we do when we come together here, I can say that no matter how passionate the worship is, and heartfelt it is, and no matter how fervent and real and honest the prayers are, and no matter how uh, biblical or true and, and, and passionate the teaching might be, that it still isn't really enough. That it's not really good enough to be good enough for God. I mean, I can't think of a single time that I've made it through a single worship song and not at some point been like, oh, I checked out of this thing and, and, and what's going on? And to, to just kind of know, like, okay, I should be in this more. I can't tell you how many prayers I've prayed that I didn't mean or that I, that I didn't want to pray or that I just kind of went through the motions with everybody as we gathered together. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times that I, like, I look at the Bible and I just kind of disregard that thing rather than like actually care about what it says as an act of worship. And the truth of the matter is that like we don't really do it in a way that is truly good enough for God. We just, we never will be able to do that. We won't be able to no matter how hard we try. And I think a lot of us know that feeling. He's God and he's perfect. Would we want a God who expects or needs anything less than that kind of perfection, than like a wholehearted devotion. He says, here's the deal. I'll give you everything that you need. I'll be your creator, your redeemer, all of these things. All I ask is that you give of yourself fully to me. And so we say, okay, I want to, I'll try to, I'll do that. But we never really are able to. And that's really the reality of what it is to try and do that. It's the same thing. The other thing that he goes on to say is... And if you've ever heard a sermon on like giving or tithing, you've heard these verses because they apply every time. They, they give us some perspective on why, uh, why we give. He says, will man rob God? Yeah, you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You see, at the time when they gave, they weren't just giving money so that the church could have enough money to go on. They gave money to these storehouses, 
and it was for everybody. Uh, How do you take care of people who are sick, who can't work? How do you take care of people who have no money and are poor? How do you take care of people who are widows and who are orphans? You take care of them with the abundance of what people give in the temple. You fill up the storehouses, and if everybody gives fully and sacrificially, then there's more than enough. But the fact is, people weren't giving. And what God says to them is he says, if you would give, if you would really fully trust me, then you would experience blessing beyond what you can imagine because that's the reason that we don't really want to give, right? We talked about this last week. We, it's like the math problem, right? I have $100, I need $100, someone else needs 50, God must be telling the guy next to me to give them the money because I need it. And that's where it always ends with many of us. We go, the reason I don't give is because I just, I need it. I need this stuff. I need to live. I need these things. And God says, if you give sacrificially back to me, then I will bless you and you'll have everything that you need. And all the people that I've ever met who live that kind of a life, are, they receive what they need. Now, uh, the other thing that God says here that's so important, and it's the reason why you hear it when we talk about giving, is he says that they're robbing him. He says they're robbing him. It's like they're taking something from him that's already his. Why is that? Because it's all really already his. He's like, I gave you the fields. I gave you the rain. I gave you the animals. I gave you life. I gave you this this family, these people. I gave you this community, this place that you could live in. I gave you all these things. And so all the resources and stuff that you have is actually mine. It belongs to me. And when you don't give that back to me abundantly, So the church in my name is an act of worship so that people can be cared for in my name. If you don't do that for me, then it's like you're robbing me of something that is mine. This is pretty strong language. And the truth is, just like you could look at the way that we worship, the way that we sacrifice, when we come together like this, you could, you could look at the way that most any of us give and, 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 and give of the resources that we have and we can say, do I give abundantly and sacrificially do I view what I have? It's the, most, it's the most fundamentally, it's like the most simple concept to wrap your mind around, okay? If I treated all my resources like they belong to God and not me, how would I live, right? Do I do that, you know? We're like, no, I don't do that. I mean, I, you know, I give, you know, I try to sometimes, but I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm quite at that place yet, but nobody else really is, right? And so it's kind of okay. Uh, we're getting there, we're working on it, we're a work in progress, See, God's saying these things to his people to basically tell them, you guys' hearts are divided. You guys aren't really actually following me in the way I called you to do it, and I'm, and I'm angry with you for that. And when you hear something like this, you have one of two responses. One, you just walk away. You go, fine, I don't want to deal with this anymore. If I can't do it well, if I can't do it, what, you know, what's worthy to, you know, what, what, what God says is worthy of him, then I'm just going to not do it anymore. And people choose that. Sometimes God's people choose that. They say, we're going to worship other gods. We, we don't need you anymore. But the other thing is you can't do that if you recognize something and it's something that's key and it's something that God's people sometimes recognize. The prophets always know it. And it's this. I need God. Like I need him. I can't just walk away. I need him. He's life. I can't just say, no, you know, try something else. I'll take a break from it for a while. I would literally, I would experience death if I did that. If I believe that I need God, that I really need him, then I have to take what he says and I have to take it seriously and I have to figure out what that means for me. When I think about the things I need in life, there's a few basic things. We share most 
of the same needs in common. I need money so that I can have food and things and, and, and a roof over my head. I need that. You know, at some point in my life, I realized I'm going to need that at some point. I'm going to need to get a job. I'm going to need some money. I'm going to need that. I need people who I care about. I don't want to be alone. Some people don't want people, but I want people. And uh, I, you know, want them to all like me. Uh, so, you know, here we go. Add that. And, uh, and, I, and then I want them to be people I like. So, okay, it gets even harder. You know, you're narrowing it down maybe. Like, they like me. I like them. And I want relationships. I don't want to be alone, right? That's like a need that I have. I need a reason. I mean, I just want to have a reason why I'm doing all this stuff. I want to have a sense of purpose. I want to have a goal. I want to have something big that I'm kind of going for. I want to have joy while I do it. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. Everybody wants that. These are needs that we have. And if one of them isn't fulfilled, we usually stop and go, life isn't complete. You know, life, I'm missing something. Yeah, this is good and this is good and this is good, but I don't have this, you know. I don't have this because I need these things. So we know what that's like to have a need. And the struggle is when we start to think of God in those terms, because we're happy to think of him as part of a life that's maybe kind of compartmentalized, but, but do we need him in the way that we need these things? You know, and then the really tough question, obviously, do we need him more than we need all these things? Because Jesus kind of says, let go of all these things if you're going to follow me. These people did what they did because they wanted God's blessing, they wanted his protection, they wanted him to provide for them and take care of them. But oftentimes they didn't do what they did because they really needed him. And it was when a sense of really truly needing God faded away that their approach to him faded and things changed and things were kind of watered down and lukewarm. And what's really hard is, even if you recognize that you, that, you, that you should need God, you should want God, you should desire him, it feels like you can't really ever want him in the way that you're supposed to, just in the way that you can't worship in the way that you're supposed to, just in the way that you, you don't really know how to give up all your resources the way that you're really supposed to. You also are like, when I'm honest, I don't know if I know how to even want God as much as I'm supposed to. I mean, really, it'd be great to just wake up one day and be like, I want God more than anything. But if I don't feel that way, then what do I do? What? What happens? To see it's important and to not still be able to experience it and feel it is a hard thing. And this is basically the story of us, the story of humanity. This is the group of people that want to be God's people, is to often say, I want to need him. But I, the fact is, when God created us in the garden, it was perfect. And why was it perfect? Simple, because we only needed God. We totally depended on him, and it was perfect, and we were happy. And then came this other way that maybe you cannot need God. You can need something else. And ever since then, we've been afflicted by living in the flesh, and as a result of that, uh, even really needing him the way that we're supposed to doesn't seem to really work the way we want. It doesn't seem to really happen. And it's not because God makes it hard. It's because we just seem inclined against it. And yet God does these amazing things. He shows us, he gives us glimpses of, of when you need me and you depend on me, here's how I will show up and here's what I will do. And it's usually pretty incredible. I remember all and ever for the first time that I experienced that. I became a Christian in high school. I was at this camp and, and the day after they, they gave a talk and it was on how to actually like live for Jesus. I did not like that talk as much as I liked the night before where they were talking about how God forgives you for everything you've done, right? So I like that talk. 
And then I went into the next talk, I was all excited, and they were like, listen, if you actually wanna like be a follower of Jesus, here's the way that Jesus calls us to live. And I was like, oh man, I'm like, I don't know, like 15 years into this life, you know, I'm, I'm most of the way through, is how it feels, right? I'm, I've, I've, lived, I've lived so much life, you know, I'm, I'm so formed, right? This is, I've arrived. These are all the things I thought of 15. And uh, remember my uncle asked me at Christmas one year, like, how's life? And I was like, I really feel like it doesn't get any better than this. And he was like, boy, I hope that's not true, man, because you're, you're 15 and you're kind of weird. You lay your clothes out, you know? I... I remember hearing that message about what it meant to to live for Jesus. And I was like, I'm gonna have to let go of a lot of stuff. I'm gonna have to just kind of let go of it. I'm gonna have to say, God, make me into a new person because there's just a lot of parts of my life that need to be left behind. And that is terrifying to me. I don't wanna do that. I don't know what's on the other side. And I was sitting on this bench by a lake because I'm at a camp, you can do that. Sitting on a bench by a lake and I'm really, really sad. And it's easy to tell when I'm sad. I'm kind of dramatic. Uh, people know around here, they kind of, oh, okay, he looks sad. I'm not going to get over there in the lion's den and deal with that. I'm sitting there sad, and this guy walks up to me. He's kind of like, a, I think he was like a youth pastor, one of the youth groups that was at the camp. He didn't even work there or anything. And he's like, well, you look really sad. What's going on? And I told him, and I was just, I was just a mess. I said, I, don't, I really don't know what to do. I feel like I, I, feel like I, I believe this, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I want it, but it seems impossibly hard. And I don't really know how to do it, and, and I'm most of the way through my life, you know, how do I relearn all these things? And he's like, he talked with me, and he gave me courage to do it, and he basically just said, if you do it, you won't regret that you did. That's what he says to me. And so I did, I, 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 I decided I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna let go and I'm gonna live that way. And I have never been more thankful that I made a decision other than the one to follow Jesus the day before, ever. I, I, I often think back to that and think I was teetering back and forth. I think of those times when I, I, I said, okay, God, here, I'll give you this. And what he gave me in return was so amazing, even in just the fact that it was him. And, and then I think, but every time I'm called to give Every time I have a chance to worship, every time I'm called to like really try to want him more or something, I don't, or I struggle with it. Even though I know that he's done these things, even though I know that he's shown himself to be good to me in the past again and again and again. And so God, speaking to these people who are blowing it, kind of half-hearted, again and again, as he eventually promises them this at the end. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah's kind of a big deal. He's the prophet who went up against all these pagan worshiping people that worship Baal. And, uh, and so Moses is kind of known as the guy in the Old Testament who represents the law, the Mosaic law. Moses brings the law. We know what that is. Uh, Elijah represents like, di- like basically denying these other gods. He represents saying, we won't, we won't worship something other than our God and, and what that can look like. And the other crazy thing about Elijah is he didn't, like, they don't think he, he, like, didn't die. It's not recorded in the Bible. So, like, we don't know exactly what that means, but basically, it doesn't say that he died, and it's like, that means he's gonna come back sometime, right? He's gonna make, like, an appearance. It's like at the end of a movie, you're like, I think there might be a sequel. I'm not really sure. Is he gonna come back? We'll see. 
People think that about Elijah a lot. That's why when Jesus comes, they ask him, are you Elijah? And he actually says to them, because it talks about this guy coming in the day of the Lord, he's like, everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to be made right. And this guy Elijah's going to come, and you're going to see this, this Elijah's going to come. And Jesus actually says, John the Baptist is more of an Elijah than me because he came and he prepared the way for me. He told people about me. He pointed people to me. I'm different. God promises his people at the end of this that something is going to happen, that someone is going to come, and that things will change, and that all will be made right and all will be reconciled. And so, we wait 400 years after this. They wait. This is really the craziest thing, I think, about Malachi, is that you know that it's the end of the Old Testament, and that means that, like, they heard these words from this prophet at this time, after they had rebuilt and kind of gone back, and there's silence for 400 years until Jesus comes. Uh, There's this restless sense that we're not really doing it the way we should, but not really an idea of how it's going to be made right and what's going to happen. We don't really seem to have enough to do these things well, and yet we don't really know what it'll look like. It's actually a lot like the disciples after Jesus died on the cross, and they kind of scattered. They went back to fishing and doing all the normal stuff, which is kind of discouraging to hear, Um, but it makes you feel better if you try to be a disciple. You're like, well, I mean, you know, they weren't that great, right? And so they get together in this upper room, and, and, and they're just, they're like waiting, um, and they don't even really know what to do. They're like, well, that was it? That was it. Okay, well, not really sure now. This doesn't quite feel like enough for us, but we're not really sure what's going to happen. And they felt like it was difficult for them to even really hope like they were supposed to. The reason that this waiting happens and ultimately uh, this answer comes, and we celebrate it on Christmas, the answer comes in the birth of Jesus. The reason why that means so much is because the fact is, the only reason that we can repent of things, the only reason that we can worship and it, and it can really be even close to what God deserves is because of Jesus. The only reason I can repent is because Jesus is the sacrifice. He's way better than any animal that I can offer. It's enough when Jesus does it. And so I can repent and it's actually for real. It's for good. That we can come and we can worship God And we can worship in his son's name and in the spirit that we were given, the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, it is like praise that's worthy to God. We can't do these things without him. And and so we have two options. One, you just feel this sense that I'm not able to do this like I should, and so I'm just going to try harder. Let's all get together. Let's try harder. Let's be harder workers. Let's do better. Let's be better versions of ourselves if we have to. And then somehow we'll able to maybe get to a point where God's like, okay, you did it. You finally did well. Or there's Jesus. And instead, he says, it's me. I'm the one that's going to make this thing possible. The difficult thing, though, is really hoping in that thing to come and hoping in Jesus to come. It was hard for the disciples to hope that something was going to happen even after the death of Jesus, that he was going to be able to, that anything else was going to go on beyond that. And the truth is that hope itself is a pretty hard thing to have. I think one of the weird things about hope is that it almost, we almost always start thinking about hope in these kinds of situations 
when we hear hard things and when we experience hard things, we, we in those moments are like, so then what? So now what? I need something to hope for that's better than this. I need something to hope for if I can't do it myself. Those are the times that we need hope the most. We, we often think of hope as something that you associate with good times. But the fact is, we associate hope with, with struggle and with difficulty, with not really measuring up. We are called to be a people who hope. And God says, I loved you before. And we know that he's a God who keeps seeking after his people again and again and redeeming them. And so we know that we can have hope. He promises us all kinds of incredible things. We know that we can hope, that we can trust that what God will do is better, that we can trust that Jesus is enough. So for a lot of people, they had to just hope and trust that something better would come or that in their inadequate attempts to worship God that somehow they could still be right with him. We know that Jesus came. Spoiler alert, we know that he was born. We celebrate it because it's such a big deal but we celebrate it because the hope is in him. And when we come together and we get a sense that we can't do enough, that we aren't able to give enough, that we really struggle with some of the most basic things like just needing God the way that we should because we know that without him is death in any form, that we know that our hope in that moment is only in Jesus. It's not in the things that we do. So we're gonna spend some more time worshiping and as we do that, that's kind of what we, that's what we reflect on. We reflect on, like, hope. Where is it? Where is mine? Where is yours? What is it in? We don't have to look ahead to something. We know that Jesus already came. The question is, can we really hope in him? Let's pray. Father, I talk about hope so much because I think it's really hard for so many of us to have hope. Whether it's because we've suffered and we've experienced hard things. Because we're just not, we don't know how to trust. Because we're not really convinced that there's like something that great to hope in. We struggle for it. We struggle to find it and to have it and to hold on to it. God, as cliche as it sounds, our prayer is simple. It is that all of the other parts of this holiday would fade away. That we would worship you because you made a way for us to be with you. You made a way for an inadequate people with divided hearts to still be with you, Lord. That's why we wanna worship you. We wanna just thank you for that. And we wanna ask you as we do, that you would give us a desire for you. Not something that we can fabricate or work up, but something that you can give us, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, we said that hope is something that comes when we're in need of it. It's hard to stir up a desire for hope when we have everything that we need. And that's the hardest reason, that's the reason it's the hardest to really fully appreciate the birth of your son when that time comes, because for most of us, we, we don't really have a sense of the hope that we need, of the need for a hope in him or what he's done, Lord. Father, we, we recognize how great you are. 
that you're such a wonderful, majestic, good, loving God, and that there really isn't anything that we can do or any way that we can give you the glory that is due to you. But we also trust that you're so good and so, so life-giving that we couldn't possibly exist apart from you. And God, it's in that paradox, it's in that, that confusing state that we find ourselves in, that we hope, Lord, in Jesus, Father. And so that's our prayer this morning as we go from here, that we would really recognize the hope that we have in him, in his birth. And the reason we celebrate a baby is because he was born in our likeness and that that means so much, Lord, for our hope, God. We thank you for everything you've done. We thank you that this is the time of year we celebrate the most, God. And we pray that as we gather with our families that we would honor you with that, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a Merry Christmas. See you tomorrow.